4: Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes.
0: Bombas, big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which this podcast is recorded. We pay our respects to their elders, past and present, and to Aboriginal elders emerging. The following podcast contains content of a graphic, violent nature and is not suitable for children.
1: He was also stalking a 12-year-old girl in Leeton. He wrote one afternoon, home alone, time enough to abduct.
0: that's journalist and author Monique Patterson, talking about the murder of Stephanie Scott, which is our main conversation, and it's coming up shortly. But first, we wanted to make sure you're aware of another podcast about another victim of violence, because this victim has received a rather different level of attention through no fault of her own. The uncomfortable truth is that we as a community don't take all victims to our hearts in the same way. We tend to feel very deeply for a certain kind of woman lost to violence in Australia and Stephanie Scott personified everything we value most in a victim. She was a young, white woman living a life that epitomised respectability. She was a schoolteacher from the small country town of Leeton in New South Wales, preparing for her wedding day and honeymoon by putting in extra hours in the classroom over the weekend to help her students cope in her absence. In videos and photos lifted from her social media pages, Stephanie's wide smile and sparkling eyes shone from every news broadcast for the week after her strange disappearance, the week that should have been the lead-up to her wedding. The other podcast we want you to know about revolves around a different kind of girl. Leanne Holland was 12 years old. When her mutilated body, covered in stab wounds and cigarette burns, was found dumped in scrubland outside Brisbane in 1991. Obviously, these were the days before social media, but a Google search will turn up several photos of this child. However, the one that's always used is decidedly sexualised. Although her little face is still round in the photo, it has black makeup around the eyes. The hair is permed and bleached. The skirt is short. The pose is twisted, self-conscious. The eyes are staring knowingly down the barrel of the camera. It's hard to believe, but at 12, Leanne was known around her suburb as promiscuous, although I'm sure that's not the word that was used in Goodna, in Ipswich in 1991. I learned that from listening to the excellent podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland?, which is made by Graham Crowley, the former detective who's been investigating the case for 30 years and our old friend Jamie Pultz who made Beenham Valley Road. I would hope that in 2020 Leanne would be called a victim of child sexual abuse and that the men who came around looking for her and picking her up in their cars would have been held to account long before she ended up dead in the bush. But it's heartening to know that there are still people fighting for Leanne and investigating those men, even if some people didn't seem to think she was worth it at the time. I caught up with Jamie Pultz for a chat about the podcast, Who Killed Leanne Holland, a couple of days ago, while both of us took a break from our children's grueling homeschooling schedule.
3: G'day, Michelle. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing pretty well, thank you. It's uh, It's been a wild ride so far, and I've just been sinking my teeth into this case, and. You know, I've been chipping my teeth at the same time because it's such a complex, controversial case and it's uh, it's it's really, you go down a rabbit hole when you go down this case. There's something about it.
0: You have to really do your research and you have to be on top of a lot with this case, don't you? You can't just kind of wander into it blindly and let everyone else
3: do the work. No, and, and thankfully, thankfully, Graham Crowley who I'm teaming up with, you know, has done a lot of research and he's given me lots of homework. <laughs> so I've 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 read books, I've read articles, I've listened to things, I've I've um, you know, spoken to a lot of people about it. And he's really put me in the right direction to gather information. So I've had to do that, but as far as workload, you know, I'm spending about 25 hours, 20 to 25 hours a week just doing this, you know, because as you know, there's so much, you know, just to record somebody, then you've got to edit it and, you know, trying to find music or answering feedback and, and Facebook and social media and all that sort of stuff. It's a massive, massive workload. So it's been a massive learning curve as well.
0: Yeah, and this is not one that you can be lazy with. Not that I would ever imagine that you would be lazy with, with Benham Valley Road either, but this one's very demanding because you've got people standing by all the time wanting to call you out, wanting to say you were wrong about something or you missed something, haven't you?
3: Yes, absolutely, yeah. We get pointed out lots of things, you know, like um, I did get Leanne Holland's date of birth wrong. I read it the wrong way around. I read it the American way. <laughs> you know, which is pretty simple and I'm happy to fix that. But, yeah, we do get, we get called, um, you know, we get emails from people saying we're defending a child killer and uh, how do you sleep at night with that sort of stuff. And But that's that's not the case. And I, I did explain um, in, in Chapter 4 that I've just released that, you know, Graham Crowley came to his position by spending 30 years investigating it. And let's not forget that he was hired by the Stafford family to investigate he hadn't even heard of the case before that phone call came in. So he didn't wake up thinking one day, how am I going to screw over the Queensland police and how am I going to screw over those detectives who did that investigation? No, he didn't. He was hired by them and he spent the last 30 years doing it at his own cost and he's come to those conclusions as a result of that. He's told me his opinion on a lot of things and I'm simply the messenger. I'm you know, relaying the information that I'm being told and I'm interviewing people that haven't been interviewed, you know, or on other podcasts. And I'm getting my, I'm learning stuff as as the listeners learning stuff. So, you know, to be labelled the things I've been labelled labelled is, you know, quite ridiculous, really.
0: I know. That's the kind of conspiracy theorist's way, isn't it? Just to accuse you of, of having this bias when it doesn't really make any sense. Why would you? I mean, you are a former police officer yourself, You have no affiliation with the family. You aren't making money or, you know, if I would venture, and I don't know for sure, but as a podcaster myself, I wouldn't imagine you're breaking even, put it that way. Um, No. 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 So, like, why would you? Why would you be working this hard on something to prove anything? I mean, you, you make the point consistently that you're not trying to prove anything, you're just trying to present the evidence as it comes up.
3: I mean, I was born in 1986. I was five years old when this happened. I, I had no preconceived ideas about this. And I've explained to people how it actually happened was doing Bean and Valley Road. And, and Graham, as a true crime fan, was listening to that. And then he contacted me and we started getting chatted. We started talking about, the, um, about my case and then we started talking about the Leanne Holland case. And I thought, gee, this is very controversial and it's very, it's murky. And we're still talking about it 30 years later. It's definitely not a clean cut case. There's something wrong with it to be still talking about it 30 years later. Would you agree? Oh, God, yeah, absolutely. And his conviction was quashed. Graham Stafford's conviction was quashed in 2009. So, we should be treating the man with respect and like he's innocent. Everyone should be spoken to as if they're innocent until proven guilty in a court of law. This man's conviction was quashed. And I made a promise when I, I said to him, would you be you know, involved in this podcast? I said to him, I will treat you like a human being. I'm not going to treat you like you're guilty or like you're innocent. I'll treat you like a human being with respect because in all fairness to him, no matter what your opinion is of the case, his conviction was quashed. So we can't go around... Treating him or assuming that he's a killer. Like, we have to give it, we have to give him some credit in that way.
0: Yeah, well, I must admit that's what impresses me about Graham is that he is prepared to submit to anything, really. He will go with you on investigations, he will answer any question. He will, you know, show up with Channel 7 to the site where Leanne's remains were found and answer any questions they have. He is an open book. He knows the evidence against him, and he will speak to it. And he really could just quietly go away and get on with his life, and he chooses not to.
3: That's right. And he did meet us in Goodna, and we went to the body dump site where Liam was found, and we went to the old house. You know, we looked at the the hotel. We went to all these places, and he accompanied us, and he answered all those questions. And as you said, he will look at the evidence, and He'll say that I can't answer for that if he can't answer for it. Like, for example, the three drops of blood that were found on removable items in the boot. I asked him, how did that get there? And he said, look, I can't tell you. I don't know. I can't answer that question. I, I, I can't explain it. And that speaks volumes as well, I think.
0: Yeah, well, I think this podcast is excellent. It's It's beautifully produced, and that's just coming from a podcast nerd. Um, I think it sounds really great, and uh, the work I knew you. from you and from Graham Crowley, whom I've never met, but from reading, I researched his work, obviously, to work on the podcasts that we put together, and I think it's excellent work. He's a good operator, as our old copper mates would say, and yeah, I'm really looking forward to hearing the rest of the podcast, and I'm hoping... Because I, I tried, I sent a lot of emails and made a lot of calls at the end of last year to the current police commissioner in Queensland, to the minister for police, anyone I could yep. think of to try and say, you know, you have to speak on this. you have, Something has to be done. This is ridiculous. And in fact, mm. I even used the word corruption around the fact that a television network and television show was given a copy of this report and the public haven't been, and Graham hasn't been, Graham Stafford, someone has to speak about this. This is crazy. You can't just remain
3: silent. Did you get a response to that?
0: No, no. I think I got one. One of them wrote back and said no, (laughs) and um, everyone else was quiet.
3: Yeah, right. So. Yeah, there's, so, you know, for us, In chapter four we've just painted the evidence the the strong circumstantial and the the forensic case against Graham Stafford and when you you do listen to that you do think wow they had a great case against him and I did think the same thing too and you know I'm sure the listeners will agree that they had a lot of circumstantial stuff against him and it's in this next chapter that's coming out in two weeks uh, that we really look at the problems with the case and and how that evidence didn't stand up to scrutiny. So
0: fantastic. You're a good operator too, mate. Thank you.
3: Oh, oh, well, thank you very much. I really appreciate that.
0: All right, Jamie Pultz. Let's both get back to our other lockdown job, which is our children.
3: <laughs> yeah. Th- thanks, Michelle. Take care, eh?
0: You too, mate. Bye. Leanne Holland was actually missing 24 hours before anyone noticed. Stephanie Scott's absence, however, was noticed immediately. She had a close-knit family, a tight circle of friends and a school community that adored her and leaned on her heavily. But it was her fiancé, Aaron, who became concerned very early in the piece. Just a week out from their wedding, the couple were generally in communication at least by text every couple of hours. So when she stopped answering calls around midday on Sunday, April 7, 2015, Aaron began to worry. The last he knew she was heading into the school to work on class notes for the teacher who'd fill in for her during their honeymoon. So he drove straight over there, but there was no sign. By early evening, with still no contact, he started calling her friends. He waited until the following morning to call her family, and then it was decided it was time to call the police. Later that day, the Monday, a group of Stephanie's friends went to the office of the local newspaper, the Leeton Irrigator, to see about getting some publicity around Stephanie's disappearance. The editor of The Irrigator at the time was Monique Patterson and she's just released a book about the events that took place in Leeton over the following six days and the effect they had on the community. It's called United in Grief and she and Emily got together to talk about it. It was the Monday
1: a friend of Stephanie's had come in because they were concerned about their friend who hadn't been seen since the Sunday morning the day before and that's how I first found out that Stephanie Scott who was a teacher at Leton High School was missing.
4: Tell us about the community of Leton
1: It's very much a small country town with that laid-back vibe. If you walk down the street you see people talking to each other all the time. It's very tight-knit. Uh, you find that news spreads very quickly in Leeson because people always linger a bit longer when they're down the street and talk about what's happening around the town. At the time when I was the editor of the newspaper, Leeson didn't have much crime at all. You'd find that the main thing that you'd be reporting on was that there might have been a few mates who had a few too many beers at one of the town's two pubs and might have got into a bit of a scuffle. But apart from that and the odd break-in, perhaps to a car, it was very much a crime-free town. As I said, it had a very country town vibe. And I know that people, before this tragedy struck the town, a lot of people left their doors unlocked and... Didn't think twice about letting their kids walk home at night alone.
4: So who was Stephanie Scott?
1: Stephanie Scott was a 26-year-old teacher. Uh, she had she grew up in Canoundra and she had studied her teaching degree in Wagga. Uh, she got a job as a teacher in Leeton and was elated. She couldn't wait to start her career. Her high school sweetheart, Aaron Leeson Woolley had stayed in Canoundra while she studied at Wagga and they their relationship just grew stronger even though they had a long-distance relationship. And when she got the job, he decided to follow her to Leeton. So Stephanie Scott then started teaching at Leighton High School. She was one of her students' favourite teachers. She was more than just a teacher. She was a mentor. Many of her students said that they would ask her for advice, not just about issues about school, but about things that were happening to them outside of school. They said that she was incredibly kind and she was always making sure that her students were doing well inside and outside of school. And one thing that they said about Stephanie that other people have also said is that she was really selfless And she was happy to make a joke at her own expense and that she would do that to try and make other people feel comfortable. She was always putting other people before herself. That's what every single person I've spoken to has said.
4: And she was young. She was a young teacher too, wasn't she? She was.
1: And I guess maybe that's why she was able to become a mentor for some of her young students who, as I said, regularly went to her for advice.
4: How many students were at Leyton High School at the time, do you know? A couple
1: of hundred. All of the students there would have 100% known Stephanie, even if they didn't have a class with her.
4: When um, the friends of Stephanie came to the paper office in Leton and asked about doing the story, what did they tell the journalist?
1: It had been reported to police on the Monday morning What had happened was that Stephanie and Aaron had been invited to go to a party on the Saturday night in their hometown and Stephanie told her fiancé that she wasn't going to go. She said, I've still got a few things to do for our wedding, which was to be the following Saturday. And she said, and I also want to go into school because I want to do some final preparations. And what she meant by that was that, when the term came back after the Easter holidays, she wasn't going to be going back to school straight away. Her and Aaron were going to be on their honeymoon. So she wanted to make sure that the substitute teacher had everything that they needed to take over her classes and she wanted to make sure that none of her students missed out during the time that she was going to be on her honeymoon. So what happened was she encouraged Aaron to go He went to the party and they remained in contact on the Saturday night. On the Sunday morning, Aaron received a text message from Stephanie and she told him that she was going to go into Leeton High School soon to do some work. He said that he would be leaving soon and he would be in contact during the trip, however, His calls and a few text messages on the trip went unanswered. He was a little bit surprised but just thought perhaps Stephanie has allowed her phone to go flat while she's busy working. When he got home to Leeton, Stephanie wasn't home and he thought this was a bit odd but thought perhaps she's just down the street or she's visiting a friend. However, he started to get a bit concerned when he'd been home for a little while and she still wasn't home. So he got in his car and he drove around Leighton, which doesn't take very long. It's a very small town. There's basically one main street. He couldn't see Stephanie's car. He drove past the school. Her car wasn't there. And he came home and he cancelled a reservation they had to go out for dinner that night and started to contact Stephanie's friends and colleagues. Now, no one had seen or heard from Stephanie, and he began to get worried. He went to bed that night hoping that he'd, pull her, he'd hear her car pull into the driveway, but it didn't, and he had a very restless and sleepless night. And in the morning when she wasn't home, he rang her family. He knew that something wasn't right because this was very out of character He said that in their five-year relationship they never went more than a few hours without at least exchanging a text message to check in on each other. So her family then also shared his fears because they knew that Stephanie would never want to worry anyone else and they drove to Leeson and that's when she was reported missing to police. I think at the start we just ran it online it was quite a brief story it was just asking for residents to be on the lookout for Stephanie or Stephanie's car and it had a photo of her and just said that it was out of character and the family and police were hoping for anyone who had seen or heard from her to get in contact
4: and what was the response to that story from the community
1: The response was huge. It is a very tight-knit community. Most residents know all or nearly all people in the town and they immediately went to social media to share the story. I know that her brother Stuart also shared a post on Facebook asking people to be on the lookout for his sister. I know that in the first day that was shared at least 1,500 times. Everyone in the town wanted to do whatever they could to find Stephanie and people even started putting on Facebook where they had gone and searched, just looking for her car, saying posts like, I've been out here to search and then encouraging people to search in other areas because they'd covered a particular area. It was horrible. This was a young person that they'd seen walking down the street regularly. She always had a smile on her face. She always said hello to everyone that she passed by. Leeton residents didn't think that they had any reason to worry about their safety in their small
4: country town. What was your feeling, Monique, as a seasoned journalist about what was happening?
1: Well, I guess in the beginning, I didn't know much about Stephanie. I did find out that she was set to be married in a week and not knowing anything about Stephanie, who she was or not having talked to many people that knew her. I guess like it did for many people, I wondered if it had something to do with the upcoming wedding and had she taken some time out to have a think about whether it was the right decision. And so that was my initial reaction. However, very quickly, my view changed, and the way that that happened was I spoke to Aaron, her fiancé, in the early days, and he was extremely candid, very open, and did not hesitate at any point in answering any of my questions, many of which were quite personal. He was adamant that this was out of character. As I said, he said that him and Stephanie were in constant contact. He didn't hesitate to tell me that she hadn't accessed her bank account. And after I found out that he was talking to anyone that he could to get the message out there, that's when I started to worry that something may have happened to her. The next thought that a lot of people had, including Stephanie's family, was that perhaps she'd had a car accident. And Leeton is in the Murrumbidgee Irrigation Area, so it's home to irrigation channels. So the next thought was that perhaps she'd had a car accident and she was stranded somewhere, and that was part of the thinking in people going out and searching for her car. But as I said, after talking to Aaron, there was no doubt in my mind that she had not gotten cold feet like there was speculation that she had that something had happened and that was why she wasn't able to get in contact with her
4: family. So Stephanie went into school on the Sunday she hasn't come home Monday she's reported missing how does the week play out then Monique because everyone must have had this absolute escalating sense of horror at what could have happened to her.
1: Yeah it was Quite confronting to be in Leeton at the time. And even as you drive into Leeton from Griffith, you'd see dozens of people walking along the side of the road. They were searching for her. They were doing line searches. These were volunteers, but there were also police. There were police divers in town searching irrigation channels. There was just a real sadness over the town. And then there were a number of national journalists who also came into the town and began asking residents, really confronting questions and reporting some of this wild speculation, really quite angering the local residents. So the town was on heightened alert. People couldn't believe that their town that had become into the national spotlight for all the wrong reasons. And people just wanted answers and they were willing to do whatever it took in terms of helping to find answers for Stephanie's family to get them.
4: I think that's where when you work for the local paper, you're in that unique position of having the community's trust. And when outsiders, so to speak, come in, it it can be a really interesting situation. When did it become apparent that Stephanie had met with foul play?
1: Well, what happened was, I believe it was was probably the Wednesday, I think it was, that the police had been conducting their investigations and finding out who had last seen Stephanie and where she'd last been seen. They found out that she had last been seen, her car had been at the Leighton High School on the Sunday morning, she'd borrowed a key to the school from a colleague and They tried to find out from other staff who else may have been at the school on the Sunday. The deputy principal said that they remembered that on the Friday, which was Good Friday, he had seen a cleaner's ute parked outside of High School. He said that he also remembered seeing this ute at Leeton High School on Sunday, which was when Stephanie went there. Now this ute belonged to a cleaner at the school. His name was Vincent Stanford. He'd been working at the school for a number of months, originally on a temporary contract that had been set to expire but had been extended. He was not supposed to be at the school outside of school hours and definitely not on school holidays, but the deputy principal had seen his youth at the school on those two occasions Police went to the house that Vincent lived in with his mother and his brother Luke, and they spoke to Vincent. They took a statement from him, and they took the statement back to Leeton Police Station, and the detective there, Tim Clark, he read the statement, and there was a red flag to him in the statement. What it was is that Vincent said on Sunday afternoon he'd been to a local supermarket, and the detective Knew that the supermarket hadn't opened on that Sunday.
0: Thank you so much to our patrons for your support Laurie Keat, beautiful, Stacey Luff, Chanel Trednik, Jess Alderson, Cynthia Nicola Tartos, and Andrew Booth, who we know recently suffered a bereavement.
2: Here's a cool fact.
0: Disturbing revelations for other Leeton families. But first, the kind of knowledge only a local detective can bring to an investigation comes in very handy when school janitor Vincent Stamford is brought in to make a statement.
1: Detective Tim Clark read the statement and there was a red flag to him in the statement. Vincent said on Sunday afternoon he'd been to a local supermarket and the detective knew that the supermarket hadn't opened on that Sunday. So he asked the officers to do a follow-up and go back to Vincent's house. Vincent again stated that that's where he had been on Sunday afternoon. And the detective later that day made the decision to go back to the house and to ask Vincent to accompany them to the police station. Now, when they went back to the house on this occasion, Vincent wasn't home but the police officers went in to wait for him and they got permission from Vincent's mother to search the house. When they did that, they found a set of keys to Leeton High School in Vincent's bedroom and then they waited for him to come home. He came home and there were police cars out the front, but that didn't seem to faze him. He came in and the police officers asked him where he'd been He told them he'd been out taking photos around the town and so the police asked him to hand over his camera, which he did. On there were photos of a number of spots around Leeson and then the police actually made a pretty grim discovery on the camera. There were two photos of what appeared to be a burnt body. And when they asked Vincent about these shocking photos, he gave them a ridiculous answer and he said, told them that he downloaded them from a horror movie. Mm. This is when uh, he was then placed under arrest and they did fur- a further search of the house and found a number of other belongings that were Stephanie's.
4: How horrifying. The night before her wedding, which was to be the Saturday, that's actually when her body was found, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, it it is. On the Friday night, when she should have been spending the night with her bridesmaids and police revealed that they had located her body, it was in Coco National Park, which is a national park sort of midway between Leachon and Griffith. It's a place that Vincent had been camping with his family before so I suppose he knew it well enough and police also confirmed that her body had been burnt. So what happened on that Friday night was that there was police at Kokopara National Park and they had set up a crime scene. They removed Stephanie's body and in the early hours of Saturday morning, which was supposed to be her wedding day, that's when her body was taken from the National Park to a morgue instead of to the place where she was set to marry her love of her life.
4: When Stephanie's body was found, how did that news break to the community and what was the reaction?
1: The news broke that she had been confirmed as deceased And the community was immediately heartbroken. Everyone was praying for a miracle. This was supposed to be the miracle and she was supposed to come home and still in somehow get married that weekend or in a few days. And that didn't happen. And people were sad and angry and just flooded by all these emotions that they didn't know what to do with.
4: And when did it become known to the community that Vincent Stanford had been charged with Stephanie's murder?
1: He had been charged with her murder on the Thursday night and I believe that police had released that information on the Friday morning. The police only said that they had arrested a 24-year-old and cleaner, okay. but it was very quickly revealed in the media who he was but the family had been in Leighton for about 12 months and people would have seen them around the town but there were some people that may have seen them but didn't immediately connect the dots and hadn't necessarily heard the name Vincent Stanford.
4: Did they ever find out why he was at the school over that weekend? Is that something he did regularly?
1: Apparently he had been As I said, he wasn't supposed to be at the school outside of hours, but he had somehow obtained keys and the alarm codes to the school. And apparently, he had been seen at the school on a number of occasions when he wasn't supposed to be there. And when they asked him what he was doing there, he said, I just wanted to clean.
4: Who is Vincent Stanford?
1: Vincent Stanford was 24 at the time of Stephanie's disappearance. He is a twin. He has an identical twin brother whose name is Marcus. He grew up in the Netherlands with his mother after his mother and father split up. He got into quite a bit of trouble at school. He was known for his violent tendencies. He was expelled from one of his schools because he was actually on school grounds outside of school and was asked by a teacher why he was, and he got violent with her. I believe she she touched or she grabbed his jacket, to which he briefly put his hands around her neck, and she was very fearful of that. And so he was expelled from that school. Other people reported that they knew him to be violent, that he had a really short fuse. He has said that he didn't have many friends. He was someone who didn't really interact with people. He would often be seen walking down the street with his head down, not making eye contact. Very kind of detached from the world is the way that he's been described. And some people think that, He may have some
4: autism traits. We previously touched on this case in an episode we did a while ago about the psychology of crime and we did get some feedback quite a lot actually, some angry feedback from families who had children with autism spectrum disorders because they felt that it was implied that Vincent Stanford had his autism was the reason why he committed this crime. What was your perspective I guess some of those families
1: may have a point because I guess sometimes we do associate certain characteristics to autism, whether that's right or wrong. But Vincent, if he did have autism traits, that's not what made him do it. He was a psychopath. He had no remorse, no empathy. He showed absolutely no regard for Stephanie or Stephanie's family. He told the police later that he rarely thought about the day that he killed Stephanie. Um, After he had killed Stephanie at the school, just moments after she told him to have a happy Easter, he took a break from cleaning up the scene and went home and ate a sandwich. So I think that... In saying that he had some traits of autism, the only, I guess, weight that was placed on that, it was that he was in some ways detached from the world, but I think that that was all that was meant to be gleaned from that. In terms of what made him do it, he was a psychopath. He didn't care about others. He only cared about meeting his own selfish needs and doing so in the time that he wanted and he told police he wasn't angry at Stephanie when he killed her. He just had a feeling that came over him and they asked him what was that feeling and he said just that I had to kill her. In the months before he murdered Stephanie, he'd been stalking a number of other women in Leeton. He had been stalking a colleague of Stephanie's, another teacher. She said that she would sometimes see him sitting in the car park after she left school late, he'd be sitting in his ute. We found out that he'd been stalking her and trying to find out more information about her. He'd been stalking a woman that he'd encountered at the local supermarket when he went there weekly with his mum. And one morning she came to work early. She was supposed to open the supermarket, but she noticed that Vincent was sitting in his ute in the car park and she got a creepy feeling, so she decided to stay in her car and she didn't get out until some work colleagues got to work and they walked in with her and she later realised that that was the right decision to make. One of the most chilling things that we found out was that he was also stalking a 12-year-old girl in Leeton. He had an exercise book and he wrote things in it about the young girl And he wrote things about the coming and goings of people at her house. He wrote one afternoon, home alone, time enough to abduct. And when the police asked him what he would have done if he had abducted her, he told them that he would have killed her.
4: That family must be completely traumatised. Were they made aware that he had been stalking their child?
1: Yes, all the women that had been stalked were made aware.
4: He also had pretty extreme consumption of pornography, didn't he?
1: He searched a number of disturbing things online. He always maintained that he had never intended to kill Stephanie, but he had searched days before he killed her the term bride rape. He looked up disturbing things and he'd ordered some pretty awful things from some online websites of handcuffs and things like that. It's
4: absolutely terrifying, isn't it? Yes. It's it's a very, very dangerous man. What was his family's connection to Leeton? How did they end up there?
1: That's a good question, actually. They had grown up in Tasmania and Marcus Vincent's twin was living in South Australia. So I'm not sure what brought them to Leeton, but I do know that they'd been in Leeson for about 12 months and they were regarded as, as a quiet family. They didn't really interact with many other residents, but their neighbours said that they were polite. They had borrowed a number of items from friendly neighbours when they moved there because they didn't come with many belongings and they fitted in okay. They weren't overly social but people would speak to them during their weekly supermarket visits and so on. Vincent wasn't as social. People just remembered that he was usually just had his head down and didn't make eye contact.
4: Now his twin brother had involvement
1: yeah, that's right. It was revealed a few months after Stephanie's death that Marcus had been charged. And what people immediately wondered was whether he had helped Vincent in the murder of Stephanie. And the reason that people immediately wondered that is because Stephanie's car was found in a field in Wamoon, and Woomoon is 11 kilometres outside of Leeson. Now, people wondered how Vincent got back to Leeton, 11 kilometres from Wamoon, 11 kilometres away. So they wondered, oh, does this mean that perhaps his brother picked him up or something like that when he was charged with accessory to murder after the fact? However, it was quickly revealed that he'd been in South Australia at the time of the murder, so that wasn't what he'd done. What he had done was he'd spoken to his brother on the Sunday And his brother, Vincent, told him that he was going to send him a package in the mail and he asked him to hold on to the package. And what we later found out was that what Marcus received in the mail was Stephanie's licence, her engagement ring and a ring that her family had given to her as a present when she graduated from university.
4: Oh, that's terrible.
1: The worst thing about it is that, we later found out that he had sold the two rings at a pawn shop in Adelaide for a little over $700.
4: Did he know what they were when he received them?
1: By the time that he received them, he said that he had found, he had heard on the news that a 24-year-old cleaner in Leeston had been arrested. And he said that he had no prior knowledge that his brother was involved, but that's when he began to join the dots and he had it confirmed pretty quickly that it was Vincent
4: who'd been charged. Marcus was actually convicted of a crime, wasn't he?
1: Yeah, he was. He was charged with accessory to murder after the fact. He served 14 months in jail and then he was released with time served. This made the community really angry. They said that he should have got a longer sentence. They said that he could have helped the police earlier on. And they also said that it was tragic that Stephanie's family would never get those rings back because they were never able to be found after they were sold from the pawn shop. It was just another slap in the face to the family.
4: So someone is walking around wearing Stephanie's rings and probably has no idea.
1: I think that it was said in court that whoever had bought them had perhaps melted them down and sold the gold or the silver, which is why they couldn't be returned.
4: Oh, that's terrible. Did you manage to have interactions with her family for stories?
1: The family was an incredible tower of strength. The first indication we got from this after her body was discovered, was that on the Saturday that was supposed to be Stephanie and Aaron's wedding. No one would have even thought twice if they just asked for privacy and didn't want anyone to contact them. Instead what they did was they asked Leeton residents uh, via social media to come and join them at the local gardens to celebrate Stephanie's life On what should have been her wedding day. So basically, in their extreme grief, which was very raw, Stephanie's body had just been taken out of the national park hours earlier. They came together with Leeton residents and they had a picnic for Stephanie, where everyone wore yellow. That was Stephanie's favourite colour. They released balloons. Her dad spoke about her. The family, consoled others it was just amazing and so yes they did they did talk to the media particularly on that day and and then months later I also spoke to Stephanie's sister Kim now I spoke to Kim about Stephanie and she shared some of her memories about her sister she told me that she was happy to talk about Stephanie and to share her precious memories about her on the proviso that she didn't want to talk about anything to do with what had happened to Stephanie. She spoke about how close they were as siblings growing up, how Stephanie was the one that kept the family together, that Stephanie loved to have a laugh at herself, she loved dance, loved music, she loved sport, And basically she just said that Stephanie was this kind of beautiful person who was always thinking of others before herself.
4: Now it was probably around 18 months wasn't it from Stephanie's murder to the time that Vincent Stanford went to court and was sentenced so how long did the trial last Monique?
1: There were a number of different court appearances the first one that they went to was in Griffith and was adjourned pretty quickly because Vincent's Solicitor asked to get a report into his mental state, and then I believe there was another delay. I I I remember being in court, and I looked at Stephanie's mum, Marilyn, and she looked at her husband and just shook her head and said, "Is that it?" Which it was, which meant another lengthy wait for them. Marcus's case was then before Vincent's. It was in Leeton, and that was when he was handed down his sentence of fourteen months which, as I said, angered residents. And then Vincent appeared in the Supreme Court. The hearing went for two days. He pleaded guilty, but initially he didn't admit to raping Stephanie,
4: which he later did. Have you heard any reports about what life is like for Vincent in jail?
1: Up and down, I think, because there's been reports that he's tried to commit suicide on a few occasions. But then there was also a report where he told police that he doesn't mind jail because he likes the solitude that his jail cell gives him and he doesn't like interacting with other people, so he doesn't mind it. Vincent's mother and brother left Leeton, I uh, think, in a couple of days after Vincent was charged. They, through the town mayor, passed on their condolences to Stephanie's family the mayor said that the mother was rightly so devastated. We don't know where the mother and the brother moved to, but we have since learned that Marcus now lives in South Australia with his father, who he'd previously been estranged from. Some locals where he lived say that he doesn't interact with other people. They sometimes see the dad and the brother walking around the street, but he doesn't seem to interact with anyone except his father. Vincent's sentenced to life in prison and he'll never be released, which obviously was the right decision, but I guess little comfort to Stephanie's family and her mum said that. She just said there's no joy in our lives without Stephanie. There will be no more happiness for her. That you know, she, she didn't get married. She didn't get to be a mother like she wanted to be. Obviously, this was the right decision, but little relief to the family. I actually heard someone in an interview the other day, they were talking about another case and their family member was killed and they said they hate it when people use the word closure. They said there will never be closure to us. Closure would have been having our loved one returned home alive there will never be closure for us and it was pretty evident that that was the case with Stephanie's family.
4: How have the family fared in the years after Stephanie's murder?
1: Well, sadly, there were still a few more shocking revelations that came. One of them was that Vincent was appealing his sentence and obviously that led to outrage. That came and went but that was another slap in the face And then in another tragedy for the family, Stephanie's father, Robert, was killed in a freak accident on their family property when he was struck and killed by a tree. So that was another terrible blow. The family do seem to try and remain stoic and to honour Stephanie's memory over the years on her birthday they put posts on Facebook and ask people to join them for a cup of tea and a mint slice, which was Stephanie's favourite. So I guess they do their best to keep her memory alive, but I think that they'll be grieving for as long as they live.
0: Thank you to patrons Mish Thomas, Nick Fish, Elsa, Jackie Leonard, Neil Forbes, Danielle Fisher, Victoria Barotta, Mem, Sarah Lawless, and Teresa Rowe. And thank you for downloading this episode of Australian True Crime. We'll be back next week.
2: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. luxurious italian leather bags and so much more plus quince only works with factories that use safe ethical and responsible manufacturing get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with quince go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365 day returns
0: as promised i am thrilled to announce that our tickets for australian true crime live are now available